Hello, and welcome back to the Great Main Podcast. I hope you all have been enjoying hearing the recordings from the Mortal Kombat Masterclass with Father Dwight Longnecker that we've been releasing over the past weeks. Today's episode talks about how we can hope to win the spiritual battles of our day. Father Dwight talks about the way the cycle of power, pride, and prejudice manifests itself in our daily lives, the secret weapon of repentance, and the many masks of atheism that we encounter in our modern world. Let's get started. Now, just to give you a bit of an overview, if you remember that this whole discussion begins by saying, how do we really understand the cross? And the the phrase, Jesus died to save us from our sins, or Jesus died to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And to understand that and understand the real victory over evil in the world, which the cross accomplishes, we have to, first of all, understand what the sin of the world is. And I know many people, when they've read Immortal Combat or heard some of my um, conference talks about this topic have said, wow, I've never seen it that way before. I always kind of understood my sin as being the bad things that I've done. And I haven't really, and the sin of the world was perhaps the bad things was lots of everybody else has done all sort of gathered together, but I haven't seen this dynamic of um, evil in the world underlying the whole thing. And the best way I can describe this sin of the world is to say, this is the default setting for the world. This is the way the world works. This is the way the world turns under the domination of Satan, this is the dark reality of human behavior, the dark reality of human history. And once you begin to see this, it actually sheds light on all of human history, sheds light on all of the Bible stories, sheds light on literature, sheds light on all of human culture, because it reveals this the depth of what is actually going on within our minds, within our hearts, and within our relationships, and within our politics, within our, our whole history. So we're going to just review this um, dynamic again a little bit to start off the session. And then the second session was I tried to, I tried to apply all of this sin of the world to the particular sins in our own life, the particular evil in our own life, and how it's manifested through the seven deadly sins, which we went through step-by-step step in session two, and showed how poison of the sin of the world actually affects the particular things that we do in the seven deadly sins. And of course, once we see this dynamic happening of of the this process of power, pride, and prejudice, and so forth, we will begin to see how it affects everything. So we're going to rattle through this again really quickly as a review, because this is the foundational element. This is the basic of everything. And so remember, we said, as soon as we make a human choice, we have power. We realize we have power. We realize that we can exercise our free will, and we can make a choice. And the power that choice automatically leads to pride. Pride, the definition of pride that I I gave was not vanity or boasting or bragging. Those are kind of symptoms of pride, not arrogance or throwing our weight around. This is these are all manifestations of pride. Pride underneath it all is the rock solid ground level basic assumption that I'm right, that the choices I made through the power that I exercise, that those choices are the right choices. And this assumption is unshakable because think of the logic for a minute, you see, if I made that choice, it must have been the right choice because that's what I chose. Okay, so therefore it must be right. And so pride is this very basic assumption, therefore, that I am right. And pride, therefore, flows on and produces prejudice because if I chose A and you chose B, then you must have chose wrong. Therefore, I have a prejudice against you. And that also produces a rivalry um, between me and you. Uh, and that resentment against that I have against you because you chose differently is leads to what Gerard called my medic, my medic desire. In other words, although you chose differently from me, and you remember I used the illustration of a flat rock or a juicy orange. If I chose the orange and you chose the rock, even though I chose the orange and I believe that's the right choice, I still am kind of resentful towards you and maybe jealous of you because you chose the rock and I kind of wanted that too. And so that builds up this rivalry between us. And that root of rivalry leads, therefore, to begins with resentment. I resent that you chose that other thing. This resentment and, and uh, rivalry between me and you, which comes from my prejudice, you chose wrong, I chose right, that resentment and rivalry will eventually lead to revenge or lead to some sort of, sort of violence. Now, Rene Girard says, when this rivalry and resentment begins to build up, 
especially within within a society within a tribe this increases the tension enormously so what happens therefore is what he calls the scapegoating mechanism instead of me attacking you who chose the rock and i chose the orange together we turn our attention towards a third party and we project our animosity onto that person and blame that person instead and Gerard says and recognizes down through history that this typically results in violence, corporate violence, group violence, in which the tribe, the group gets together, blames the third party, blames that objective outsider, and therefore first isolates them and then persecutes them and then excludes them completely. And finally, if they're still there, the problem is still there, they have to be done away with completely. And that's what we call the final solution which is a, a form of corporate murder or co corporate execution. And Gerard notices, for instance, that the corporate or the tribal murder, the tribal um, ritual sacrifice happens, must happen in a, in a public way. The murder has to be seen to be done. And secondly, it has to be anonymous. So when the tribe gathers together and focusing all their animosity on the scapegoat, there has to be one person who begins by throwing the stone in the stoning or firing the bullet. And after that, the rest of the tribe jumps on board and the murder is accomplished. That way, no one person actually commits the murder. Instead, the entire tribe commits the murder. And therefore, there's an, an anonymity about it and everybody gets away with it. And they don't recognize that what they've done is actually something evil. And so this sin of the world is what I, what I call the sin of the world tumbles on and, 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 and is seen in many, many different aspects of life on the, on the personal level, on the family level, on the corporate level, on the national level, on the international level. It breaks out in things like lynchings. It breaks out in the concentration camps. It breaks out in war. It breaks out in the blame, which we see going on all the time in the media uh, and the violence that we see in the media with the cancel culture. This is a form of scapegoating in our society today. And Gerard, who only died in 2015, actually believed that in our modern age, in our modern society, it's actually getting worse, not better. So when people say, what does this death of this criminal 2000 years ago have to do with me in the 21st century? It has a lot to do with you in the 21st century, because in our society today, in Western society, and all over the world, this scapegoating, this blame mechanism, this corporate violence is increasing actually in our society. We, we saw all the riots and so forth with Antifa and Black Lives Matter and so forth in the, in the tumultuous year of 2020, when we saw such division in our, in our nation. This was, this, this was the same thing I'm talking about, the violence which builds up and builds up and builds up until we find some kind of a scapegoat or some kind of an outlet for it. Now, after the uh, scapegoating mechanism takes place, after the violence is over, people actually feel good rather than feeling evil and saying, we've done something bad. The tribe actually feels euphoric and feels excited. I, I will never forget, for instance, last summer in watching some of the riots and some of the looting that was going on after the window of the shop was broken and the, the people streaming in and just taking stuff and setting things on fire and just expressing their rage and their anger. There was actually dancing around and happiness in the street. They were all congratulating themselves. There was a kind of euphoria that they'd done this and they didn't realize they were doing anything evil. Furthermore, in the greater society, it is it soon recognized that that was a good thing. That's why so much of the crime was not actually condemned by the media and by the politicians because they either kept silent or they approved of it. So that we had some of our politicians saying, yeah, do more of this. We're not going to stop. And so the violence, therefore, actually starts to become ritualized. And that's why in our society, we should not expect the violence to actually die down unless there's some other kind of an outlet. This will increase, I'm afraid, in the years to come. Now, the gospel, on the other hand, shows Jesus, of course, Jesus of Nazareth, falling victim to this, what I call a demonic dynamic. Jesus is, of course, in the middle of a tribe, the Jews, who are going through enormous amounts of stress where they are. They're being oppressed by the Romans. They're being oppressed by their own people. They're being oppressed by the Herodians. And there's a lot of pressure building up within their society. And what, did the Jewish what does the Jewish leadership do? They point to that, that troublesome prophet from Nazareth and say, he's the problem. He's the one we blame. It's better for him to die than that all of us should die. 
And so the whole drama of the Gospels, which culminate in the Passion narrative, is a retelling of this whole dynamic playing out in the life of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. So we also see when he's actually beaten and crucified that it happens publicly. It happens anonymously. The Jews don't accept the blame. They pass the blame on to Pilate, who passes the blame back to them. They're all shifting the blame. It wasn't me who did this. It wasn't me who did this. Meantime, Jesus, because he's the only one who is truly innocent, is able and has the power to take all of this evil dynamic on himself and break it from the inside out. Now, remember, if he had not risen from the dead, he would simply have been yet another victim of this dynamic of evil in the world, this sin of the world. But because he rises from the dead, he actually defeats it from the inside out, and he breaks the whole thing by the power of his life, which comes back and defeats it. I don't know if you've seen Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, but he has a brilliant scene in there where the character who is portraying the devil at the point that our Lord is crucified, and he says, it is finished. The camera goes over to, to the devil, who is writhing about in agony because he realizes that he's overplayed his hand. And actually, this whole um, dynamic of evil and murder, which I call the sin of the world, which he's been setting up since the Garden of Eden, has now been broken and fractured forever uh, by the death of, of Jesus. So I showed in session two how the, my what's called my met, what Gerard calls my medic desire, this imitation of others, which causes the rivalry, is the thing which twists our natural desires. And we went through the seven deadly sins as a manifestations of evil and showed how each one of those seven deadly sins was a, a natural desire and a good desire twisted by my medic desire, twisted by the competition, twisted by the desire to be. Uh, twisted by the rivalry, twisted by the desire to be better than the other, and that that continues to manifest, manifest itself through the seven deadly sins and the particular sins in our lives. So the big picture of the sin of the world, this demonic dynamic, as I call it, works its way into our own lives through the individual choices we make for evil and the individual choices which lead us into the seven deadly sins. At the end of the second session, I then addressed seven swords of the spirit built on the way that Jesus actually overcomes the evil. And remember some of the key points of that were that Jesus, God overcomes the evil through the secret son and who's, who's his secret agent in the world, his son, Jesus, and the little lady, the, the smallness and the humility of the blessed virgin who actually plant this seed of light and power within the evil dynamic and therefore help to defeat the sin of the world from the inside out. Those seven swords of the spirit, ten swords of the spirit, rather, which all begin with the letter S, are outlined in uh, the second half of um, the book, Immortal Combat. I'd like to spend a few moments now talking about the, the, the root of the antidote to power, pride, and prejudice. And it is the genius aspect of our Christian faith, which is primary and the first step in our Christian calling, and that is the gift of repentance. Now, as far as I know, in study I've done of all the world religions, which I, I'm afraid is not exhaustive, but no other world religion has repentance as the foundational first step of everything. Christianity does, all the forms of Christianity do, and repentance, therefore, is the antidote to this dynamic of power, pride, prejudice, rivalry, and revenge. Why? Because if power is the exercise of free will, then repentance is being able to say, I'm setting my power aside. That is, my exercise of my power is not what's most important. Instead, I realize that I've used my power wrongly, and I am saying sorry about that. I'm saying, in fact, um, against pride, which is I am right, I'm saying, actually, I'm wrong. And the very first thing we do, therefore, as Christians is to say, I'm wrong. You know, I can remember my first real Christian experience was when I was five years old. I was brought up in an evangelical home, and I expect at that Sunday night at church, the preacher must have been preaching about hell and heaven and the need to get saved or whatever he was preaching about. But I came home uh, and said to my mom that uh, I wanted to accept Jesus in my heart, five years old, right? And so I knelt down with her and said what evangelicals recognize as the sinner's prayer. In other words, I'm sorry for what I've done wrong, and I want to accept um, the gift of 
Christ's saving work. And people will say, well, how can you do that at the age of five? And I would say, well, I don't know, but I did. And it, of course, it wasn't a mature choice. It was the choice of a five-year-old boy, but it was one which has stayed with me forever and one which I, I know is sincere even at that point. And the key turning point of all of this was the ability to say, I'm not actually right. I'm wrong. I've got it wrong. And that's what confession of sin, what repentance is all about. Now, that not only defeats power because we set aside our free will, it also defeats pride because we're saying, I'm not right after, after all. I've got things wrong. And prejudice, it defeats because if I am right and you are wrong, then my conviction is that if I'm right, I'm good. And if you're wrong, you're bad. And therefore, repentance pulls the plug on this one as well. Because if I'm sometimes wrong, that's and I can forgive myself and accept forgiveness, I am therefore going to be more tolerant towards you if you are wrong and understand that you are wrong because you're human like me. So repentance brings renewal in this amazing way because it diffuses the abuse of power because it introduces self-criticism. It diffuses pride because at the start I say I'm wrong and now I'm, 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 when I repent, I say I'm wrong. I'm not right. And it diffuses prejudice because it makes me tolerant of others' failings. So repentance therefore also diffuses the blame mechanism because as I repent, I take responsibility both for what I have done and for putting things right that went wrong. So this thing we take so much for granted that repentance is part of our Catholic faith is actually hugely crucial to the whole thing. Because if this does not happen, then there's, then we, we haven't even begun the Christian journey and repentance is absolutely foundational because it corrects the power, the pride and the prejudice just by its very nature. We come in and say, actually, I'm not right. Now, this also explains why for me, the core, the heart of the Mass is not necessarily the consecration of the bread and the wine to be the body and blood of Christ. Instead, for me as a priest, the mo most moving and the most crucial part of the Mass is when I turn around and I take the chalice and the host and I present to the people and say, Ecce Agnus Dei, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As I say those that simple phrase, all of that I've been talking about here and that I've written about just floods into my mind and into my heart. And I'm saying to the people, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the point of repentance. This is the point of redemption. Happily, in the new church we've built in my parish, we have a beautiful baldacchino, which is erected over the altar. And on the front of the baldacchino, I, have I had inscribed in big letters, Behold the Lamb of God, and around the side who takes away the sin of the world. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So at that point in the Mass, therefore, this truth, this crucial truth of what the Lamb of God does on the cross is upheld for the people. And remember, the Mass is a representation in real time of the timeless sacrifice of our Lord on the cross. And the Catechism says that we present there in an unbloody manner what was done in a bloody fashion in the sacrifice of Christ so long ago. And when the priest, therefore, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb, what do the people respond? The people respond, Lord, I am not worthy to come under your Lord, I am not worthy, but only say the word and I shall be healed. In other words, there's an action of faith in response to the declaration that here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is why I say that this is a cosmic transaction of repentance and faith. When we come to Mass, therefore, we begin the Mass with the Confitior, confessing our sins, and we move through step by step to the celebration of this once for all sacrifice, which shattered the sin of the world 2,000 years ago and continues to be revivified and represented on every altar as every Mass is celebrated. Then when the priest says, Behold the Lamb of God, it's brought home to everybody who's there and they participate fully with their response. Because after they say, I am not worthy, which is another act of repentance, they then come forward and receive communion and receive the benefits of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And when I say this is a cosmic transaction, this transaction that I call it, a transaction of grace, takes place on a daily basis at all the altars around the world. Think about it for a moment. This is just awesome. This transaction of grace takes place on every altar around the world every day, 
at the hands of every priest who celebrates Mass, and the transaction takes place on an individual level between the priest and what's happening at the altar, and then between the priest and the congregation who's there on a corporate level, but this is happening at the same time on a global level, and I believe on a cosmic level, so that the sacrifice of our Lord being represented in the Mass time and time again is this same sacrifice which defeats evil. And Padre Pio and others have said, who have great mystical insights, have said things like, if the Mass should cease, the world would cease. In other words, if the Mass stops being celebrated, then the defeat of evil in the world will also disappear. And Others, other mystics have said, if the mass should disappear, the demons would swamp over the world and darkness would descend. Uh, I really believe these insights from the mystics because I have sensed it in my own heart and having seen and understood this dynamic of evil, realize how important the sacrifice of Christ is on the cross, how relevant it is for every day in our lives today, and why the mass is therefore so important and the transaction that takes place uh, in the mass. What grieves me is that so many of our priests, our bishops, and our people in the pew, too, let's not forget the people in the pew, don't seem to grasp this or understand it at all. And the mystery of the atonement and what Christ really accomplished and the spiritual power that it has in the world seems to go right over their heads. I'm not blaming anybody for this. This is a deep mystery, which not everybody can, ha can have access to, but I think an awful lot more people might have access to it. It's one of the reasons I wrote Immortal Combat, because I feel so passionately that the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, rather than being a historical irrelevance, is actually more relevant and more necessary than it's ever been. And that I hope that I've been able to share with you my passion about this and share with you how our Lord's death was so vitally important and how the commemoration of his death in the Mass, therefore, is so vitally important for us as Catholics. Um, and as witnesses to this, to the whole, I'm convinced that this is why when our Lord said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and I will be with you to the end of time, this is what he meant. And it is active and it's real and it's happening every day. As I say, on an individual, a corporate, a global and a cosmic level. So I hope this inspires you to uh, return to Mass and to return to Eucharistic adoration with more fervor in your heart, realizing what is really happening and that we talk about how to fight the spiritual battle, that by actually attending Mass and praying for your priests and connecting with the sacraments of the church, you will actually fight the spiritual battle in deeper and more powerful ways than you're actually perhaps aware of. So having gone through back some of those things and stressing those important points, I would like to just share for the rest of my time here a little bit of a preview of uh, the book I have coming out in August, which is called um, Beheading Hydra. And if this sin of the world is manifested, as we saw in session two, in particular ways through the seven deadly sins in our own lives, then it is also manifested in particular ways in our society. So for the rest of the time this evening, I'd like to go through with you some of what I call the many masks of atheism, the ways that the sin of the world is actually manifested through various ideologies in our society. Now, when I talk about these things, it's important to remember that I'm talking about cultural manifestations of evil. And when I speak about culture, I don't just, I'm not just referring to things that we think of as being cultural, like the opera or an art gallery or literature or something like that, which are elements of culture. Instead, when I refer to culture, I'm talking about our society, everything we take for granted in our society, in our Western world. The technology, the advertising, the politics, the education, the religion, the ethnicities, the material things that we enjoy, the affluence we enjoy, the finances, the economy, all of this makes up the culture that we live in. Now, the interesting thing to me about culture is that it is the air we breathe. We don't really think about these things very much. It's just the world we live in. Um, and you know the old saying that the last thing the fish sees is the water. So it is with culture. This is the water we swim in. This is the world we live in. This is the culture that we live in. And these many masks of atheism are 16 different components in the culture that we live in that we take for granted and we never really challenge and perhaps never really think about very much. Furthermore, not only are these 16 masks of atheism part of our culture, 
but they have heavily influenced our Christianity and heavily, influ heavily influenced the Catholic faith because the Catholic faith is always taking place, is always happening within a cultural context. And the cultural context, whether it's good or bad or indifferent, it's always going to have an effect on the practice of Catholicism and on the understanding of Catholicism. Therefore, these 16 different ideologies or 16 different isms are present in our culture, present in our society in ways that we never actually think about very much, but which we just sort of assume and which have influenced our understanding of our faith and polluted our understanding of the faith in really radical ways. And people are say, people like to say, well, why are the young people leaving the church? Why is everybody, why are the pews empty? Why are there no more vocations? Why is the church going through such a crisis of confidence right now? It's because these 16 isms and others have influenced our understanding of the faith and influenced our understanding of Catholicism in deadly ways. And these are all cultural manifestations of the sin of the world, which I'd like to go through with you step by step. They are put together in eight different pairs. And in Beheading Hydra, I actually go through and discuss the in some detail, the historical background and where these problems came from. And in order to do that briefly this evening, I'll, I'll simply say that for the first 1500 years of Christendom, really from antiquity up until the, sixth, the 15th and 16th century, everybody shared a basic worldview that was shared by humanity in every culture wherever you go, not just in Greek and Roman and Christian culture, but in every culture. And that is basically a platonic worldview, an understanding that there was this physical world, this material world, but there was also an unseen world, an invisible world, a world of spiritual realities. And this was a commonplace to, of all the ancient religions, all of the primitive religions, uh, paganism, Eastern religions, whatever religion you like. If it was a religion, that's what religion was about. It was about the interface between this physical world and the invisible spiritual world. And everybody believed that that was the nature of reality, that there was a physical realm, which you could see and sense and touch with your senses. And there was an invisible realm, which was open only to the spiritual perception. And th that was the realm of heaven and hell or the afterlife, the underworld, whatever the different religions referred to it as. There was the world of the gods and the goddesses, the world of the, the spiritual, the invisible realm. And then there was the physical realm. And that the two actually had connecting points. And this was basically the uh, worldview of everyone, all humanity in every culture down through the ages. And then, and I guess it was about the 14th century, this worldview, which had been codified in Platonic and Aristotelian philosophies, the philosophers in the, in the Middle Ages began to question that. And without going into too much detail, the, the philosophy of Plato said that this, in this invisible world, there were forms. There was an invisible parallel to all of the physical things that we know of with our senses. And this invisible parallel was the eternal aspect of that particular thing. Well, the nominalists came along, starting with William of Ockham, an Englishman, and some other philosophers in, I think it was the 14th century. And they said, that invisible realm that you're talking about, that doesn't exist. Those things that you believe are real or in the invisible realm, they're just the names that we give things. That's the term nominalism. And it was a philosophical idea which would have huge consequences because eventually this idea that the invisible realm was just the names that we give things and there was no reality to it begins to filter down from philosophy into theology and it begins to influence theologians like Martin Luther and John Calvin and the other reformers. So the Catholic understanding, which was a sacramental, had the sacramental vision that the sacraments were the connecting point between the invisible world and the physical world. Suddenly, the rug was pulled out, pulled out from that sacramental understanding of reality, which the Catholic Church had upheld for 1500 years, because the reformers were saying that invisible reality you're talking about doesn't really exist. And that's why the reformers denied, basically denied the sacraments and divide, denied the efficacy and the, and the validity of the sacraments, because they said that invisible dimension that you talk about in the sacraments, it's just names that you're using. It's not real. Therefore, the Protestants understanding that the bread and the wine is symbolic, 
that it's not the body and blood of Christ, but it represents the body and blood of Christ. It's, it's a symbol only because that invisible reality that we believe in, they deny and say it doesn't exist. Well, so it finds its way into, into Protestantism. And this is the big divide with, with, with the Protestant revolution. Actually, underneath it, it's a philosophical revolution that had been already been in place for about 100 or 150 years before it becomes, begins to surface within Protestantism. The next step on from Protestantism is the revolution of the Enlightenment thinkers in the 16th and the 17th centuries. And this is where materialism starts to come in. Now we're going to go through this list step by step. Materialism is the outworking of nominalism, because nominalism says that invisible realm, those are just names that you're using. Materialism says, yeah, that's right. There is no invisible realm. There is no heaven, no hell, no angels, and no demons. It's what you see is what you get. It's this physical realm is the only reality that there is. So get over it. There isn't anything else than this. And materialism, therefore, is not just, you know, going to the mall to shop until you drop. Materialism is a philosophy of this material world is the only thing that there is. And shopping until you drop is really just a manifestation of that because you're saying this material stuff that I'm getting is the only thing that's going to make me happy. And so materialism is this underlying philosophy of there is no heaven and hell and angels and demons. All that is fairy tale stuff. It doesn't really exist. It's in your imagination. The only real thing is right here. Which, which can actually be tested with your senses. Now, when I link this with atheism, it's because materialism must be a form of atheism. Why? Because if there's no heaven and no hell, no afterlife, no angels, no demons, no spiritual reality, then there can't be any God either, because God is the ultimate invisible reality. And so the materialists in the 17th and 18th century, 16th, 17th centuries, century, they didn't go as far as explicit atheism, and yet their philosophy was atheistic at its heart, because materialism, saying there's no invisible realm, must follow that there's no God. And so materialism goes hand in hand with atheism, and I contend that America today is a very materialistic and therefore a very atheistic society. And the rest of these isms that we're going to look at are manifestations of that atheism, which are deeply rooted in our society, society deeply rooted in our cultural assumptions, deeply rooted in the way we look at the world, and I'm afraid have, has deeply affected and polluted the Catholic Church, which is and the whole all of the Christian churches, which is why uh, the church is so weak and so ineffective in so many ways. The second pair is scientism and historicism. Scientism follows on from materialism. If materialism is true and there's only this physical world, the only knowledge you can actually um, trust is the knowledge that is delivered by science. It is only, therefore, through scientific experimentation, says the person who follows scientism, that you can actually know any truth at all. Now, when we criticize scientism, we're not criticizing scientists or science in general. Science is fine. Science and scientists, sci the study, the authentic study of science actually comes from the foundations of Catholicism. So we're not criticizing science as such, but we're criticizing a philosophy which says the only truth that you can know comes through scientific experimentation and scientific proof. Various different isms have come out of scientism. Um, empiricism, for instance, and logical positivism have come out of scientism, the, that the only kind of proof that you can have is scientific proof. Now, if scientism is true, then historicism goes along with it, because historicism says there is no intrinsic meaning to history. History is simply a compilation or record of particular events that took place and different characters that interacted down through history in a fairly random matter. It really just studies the interaction and relationship between different characters and between different events. It doesn't see any overarching narrative, any overarching meaning to history. So historicism, therefore, is defined as history without any meaning or any overarching meaning, because, of course, if there is no God, then there is no one to direct the overarching narrative of history. We know when I was in Sunday school, my Sunday school teacher said history is his story, meaning the story of Jesus and the story of God's redemption for the world. And as Christians, we believe that there is a purpose to history. There's a beginning, there's an end, and there's a narrative, and there is a drama that's being enacted 
because there is a storyteller. There is a great dramatist who's put the whole story together. Historicism says, uh-uh, there is no storyteller. There is no dramatist, and therefore there is no overarching meaning to history. It's simply a compilation of historical events and power struggles between various characters who economically and militarily and whatever fought and conflicted, and there were certain results as, as a consequence. So historicism is the idea that there is no overarching narrative to history. And as I go through these isms, very often people are saying, aha, I can see it. Yes, that's exactly the assumptions that we have in our society. How often have you heard, for instance, with scientism, when people say, well, we know that science has disproved religion. That's scientism being expressed in a popular way. Or if the news is reported or the history is reported and it's not given any context or given any meaning or any interpretation, that's historicism playing itself out in the news cycle, playing itself out in history that's being taught. Moving on uh, to the third pair, utilitarianism is basically the Enlightenment philosophy by developed by an Englishman called Jeremy Bentham, who was an avowed atheist. And this is the quest for happiness. In the French Enlightenment in the 17th and 18th century, the quest began to come up of what was actually going to make us happy. They, have, they had abandoned Catholicism, and so they were saying, what will actually make mankind happy? And various different theories came up with different thinkers, Montaigne and Rousseau and various others, Diderot. And Jeremy Bentham, an Englishman, says, well, what, obviously what is, going to make people, what is going to make people happy is the greatest is the thing which gives the greatest pleasure or the greatest happiness to the greatest number of people. How to make society happy? Find the thing which makes the greatest number of people actually happy, and you will be able to make a good society where the largest number of people are as happy as possible. This is utilitarianism. Of course, the problems with utilitarianism is that it's also an atheistic um, point of view. It considers only what make might what make what what might make people happy in the temporal realm. It has no consideration for the eternal realm, no consideration for the soul, no consideration for the invisible realm. And so therefore utilitarianism is obviously going to fall because the question comes up, who's going to decide what makes me happy? Are you going to decide what makes me happy? What if I don't like the decision that you've made about my happiness? Are you going to force my, my your, your version of happiness on me? In order to make the most number of people poss happy possible, somebody's form, version of happiness has to be forced on them. And so utilitarianism must lead, therefore, to totalitarianism, a forceful a form of government which is forcing happiness on other people. I wonder sometimes with the pressure about vaccinations at the moment and the pressure for people to all be happy and healthy, who's actually making this happen? the people themselves or, or some other agency who's trying to force happiness on them. This is an example of utilitarianism. Pragmatism goes hand in hand with utilitarianism because pragmatism says the effect that we want, the happiness that we want, has to be affected in the most cost-effective and efficient manner. So let's use a typical moral example. Utilitarianism and pragmatism take no, take no consideration for greater moral values. Let's take a typical example. Let's say 16-year-old Sally has just found that she's pregnant after an encounter with her 17-year-old boyfriend. And her parents and his parents say, these kids are too young to get married. They're too young to be parents. Let's take the... Um, utilitarian solution. Let's take the obvious solution and take Sally to an abortion clinic. This is a utilitarian solution with no regard of a higher sense of morality. It's simply taking a practical decision to solve a problem. We'll take care of that for you, Sally. We'll take care of that pregnancy, which means, of course, the termination of the life of the unborn child. Pragmatism says, and let's do this as quickly as possible, as cheaply as possible, and as efficiently as possible. So, Daddy pulls out the checkbook, goes with the boy's father, and takes Sally to the abortion clinic, writes the check, and, so, and the deed is done efficiently and effectively and hygienically, and a great crime is committed because of the utilitarian and pragmatic solution. Magnify this on a greater scale, and you find the final solution of the Nazis, 
which was the utilitarian solution to creating a master race, is to get rid of those who are not part of the master race, which is the Jews and the gypsies and the homosexuals and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the whole lot of subspecies that the Nazis wanted to get out, get rid of. And that's utilitarianism. Pragmatism is Auschwitz. Let's do this in the most cost-effective and efficient way. Herd them into the gas chambers, put in the Zyklon B pellets, which poison them, burn the bodies, and bring in the next boxcar. I'm sorry if the examples I'm using are rather grim, but this is actually what happens with utilitarianism and pragmatism. If you have merely utilitarian solutions and merely pragmatic solutions, it ends up being leading to great cruelty and great crimes. This is driven forward by two more of the isms. Progressivism is the idea that um, mankind is getting better and better every day, and that this is an inevitable ascent of, of humanity where we will continue to ascend to the greatness that we're destined for. This is a direct outgrowth of a couple of um, ideas that were earlier on. First of all, the philosophy of Rousseau, the Enlightenment, French Enlightenment thinker, who basically planted in our ideas, in our minds, the idea that we are good, basically we're good, not basically we're fallen, but basically we're good. The Catholic view is we're good, but we have fallen into sin. Rousseau says, no, you're good. Your human nature is good. Go with your human nature. It's a good thing that you should trust in your human nature, just the way you are. When this is combined with Darwinism, which comes along just a short time later, Darwin, of course, discerns the survival of the fittest and discerns within his theory of evolution that there is this upward ascent of biology, biological ascent in which the species are becoming more and more complex and therefore more and more sophisticated and therefore better and better. This idea of Darwinism, of this ascent of biology, is picked up by Herbert Spencer, another Englishman, who applies it to society. And social Darwinism says that our society is also getting better and better and humanity is ascending step by step to this great fulfillment at some point in which we will have this perfect society and perfect humanity. This is, therefore, progressivism leads to utopianism, the idea that we will have this perfect society somewhere where we're all perfect. Folks, if you have not looked into something called transhumanism, which is one of the trends now, you ought to, because transhumanism is the ultimate expression of progressivism and utopianism. Transhumanism is the idea that with artificial intelligence and with medical tech breakthroughs and with chemical technology, uh, we human beings are going to be able to extend our lifespan further and further and finally be able to achieve immortality where with a combination of computer intelligence, artificial intelligence, medical advances and techno technological advances, we will be able one day to ascend to this brave new world where a small segment of humanity will be able to be immortal and be able to, to transcend our humanity. Thus the word transhumanism. This is a frightening trend which is going on and is at the forefront of some of the richest, some of the richest um, billionaires in the world who are pushing the transhumanist agenda combined with modern technology and modern medicine is, is truly frightening. This is combined, therefore, with um, a few of the, the next few of these isms, which I'm going to rattle through fairly quickly because we're, we're getting starting to run out of time. And that is that relativism is underlying all of these different isms. Relativism is basically the view that there is no such thing as truth, or if there is such thing as truth, you can't actually state it objectively or dogmatically. You can see where it all comes together. If there is no supernatural realm, if there's no storyteller or dramatist overseeing the, the, the vast scale of human history, then of course, there's no such thing as dogma. There's no such thing as revealed truth because there's no one to reveal it. Therefore, the only kind of truth that can be discovered is scientific truth. And that is a bit shaky as well because of our human perceptions. So therefore, Relativism is very often expressed in casual terms as someone saying, well, you have your truth and I have my truth. Have you heard anybody say that? Well, you have your truth. We'll have to agree to disagree. And I have my truth. You know, you cannot have your truth and my truth. There is simply truth or there is no truth. And relativism is the view that there is no truth. There is no God to reveal the truth. Therefore, we're on our own and Whatever your truth is for you, you have to try to live by that. And my truth for me is for me to try to live by. Obviously, the only virtue that comes out of this that remains is tolerance. We must all tolerate one another's truths. 
when this is actually manifested in the area of our faith, it brings about indifferentism. In other words, are you a Catholic? Well, that's your truth, and you follow that, and that's good for you. I'm Protestant. I follow my truth. That's good for me. Are you Buddhist or Hindu or is Muslim or Jew? You follow your truth. That's good for you. And I follow my truth, which is good for me. And indifferentism rears its head when you hear people say things like, well, you know, it's true that Johnny now goes to the Baptist church when he used to be Catholic, but he's very sincere about that. And so I respect him. And I'm sure that he will obviously, he, that he'll, he'll go to heaven too. This leads to a uh, the other aspect of indifferentism, which is universalism, which is God's really going to save everybody. Everybody's going to make it into heaven because they all follow the different path up the same mountain. You've heard that before. So relativism leads to indifferentism in religion and indifferentism in, in beliefs. And therefore, in a society, this is one of the things in our society, again, which we take totally for granted, that you cannot criticize anybody else's belief because that's their truth. You have to respect that. Along with this goes naturally goes individualism, and individualism is not just being unique or not just having particular gifts, but actually asserting that your particular personality and your particular gift and your particular individual being is kind of the most important thing, the only important thing, and that therefore your individualism is all that really matters. Now, individualism is a tricky one because we all value uh, individualists and we we value unique people who accomplish great things because of their unique personality and their unique gifts. That's okay. But when an individual asserts their particular human rights and their particular personality above everything else, this leads to individualism, which is extremely lonely, which is why I've teamed up individualism with tribalism. Because the individual, the complete individualist, eventually becomes lonely and starts seeking other people who are like him or like her. And before long, they form a tribe of people who are similar in their individualism and therefore not individualists at all. I can remember one time when I lived in England, for instance, I was in a supermarket and there was this kid who was a punk rocker. He had a purple mohawk haircut and black leather jacket and torn jeans and chains hanging on the side of his jeans. And to be individualistic, he was carrying a teapot in the supermarket line. And I was surprised and a bit delighted when he it was his turn to actually pay pay for his groceries and he put the teapot on the counter and took the lid off and he had his money in there he was using the teapot kind of like a purse well i was kind of intrigued by this guy and especially intrigued when i saw him leave the supermarket and outside there was a whole gang of other punk rockers who were dressed almost exactly like him maybe their mohawk was blue or purple rather than pink and but they had the same leathers the same chains the same torn jeans the same big boots in other words all these individualists had got together in a tribe of individualists which was in, in which they weren't really very individualist at all and while it's kind of amusing to hear that example when this happens in society and the tribe becomes committed to their ideology and the tribe becomes committed to their particular cause, then we see that dynamic of evil that I was talking about playing out when before long they're beginning to attack and focus on those who are different from them. And this dynamic of evil and scapegoating begins to play out in our society. Along with this individualism goes sentimentalism and sentimentalism is basically making all of your decisions based only on your feelings. Now, Again, we don't want to be down on feelings and emotions. Feelings and emotions are good, but these are not the only means by which we make our decisions, especially our moral decisions. And if we only rely on our emotions and our feelings, then this sentimentalism can become very dangerous because our feelings can, put it this way, we sometimes think that our, our feelings are good because the feelings that we recognize first are nice feelings, tender feelings of the love of beauty, the love of uh, family, the love of children, the love of all things that are animals, the, th the love of nature, the, th the love of all things that are beautiful and sweet. And we think of our feelings and our emotions as only as the good feelings and emotions that we judge by. But of course, there's a whole range of emotions that are not actually very pretty. And those are the feelings of rage, emotion, rivalry, revenge, and sentimentalism, which begins in sweetness, will invariably end up in the emotions that are violent and aggressive towards others. So sentimentalism, while it appears to be a very sweet, uh, a sweetness and light kind of ideology, actually has a dark side, which can lead in, into um, very ser very, some very serious violence and aggression toward others. 
along with sentimentalism is romanticism and romanticism can be defined as sentimentalism guiding everything the romantics actually took their feelings their individualistic feelings and emotions and let them rule their politics rule their eco economics rule their family life rule their moral decisions and rule everything that they were doing so that the romantic typically is living in a kind of um fantasy world of their created by their emotions now again romanticism has some wonderful aspects to it some of the greatest art and music from the 19th century comes from the romantic movement but the romantic movement is deeply rooted in individualism and in sentimentalism and in the other isms that we've been talking about so romanticism in it in and of itself has produced some beautiful fruits in the arts especially but there's a deep decadence to it. There's a deep selfishness to it. There's a deep sort of dark side to it, which began to evidence itself in the, in the decadence movement of the late 19th century, when, they be, when the romantics began to indulge in horror, in the occult, in sexual perversion, and in really the darker side of human nature and the darker side of sin. And romanticism will eventually lead down that path if one is not careful which finally leads us to the last pair, which is eroticism and Freudianism. The individualism and the sentimentalism, which came out of the Enlightenment and came out of the, in, in the 19th century, eventually had to result in eroticism. In other words, if you take sentimentalism and you, one has tender feelings for this beautiful young woman, we'll say, through sentimentalism and individualism, they're saying those feelings that you have are wonderful feelings, they're glorious feelings, they're noble feelings, therefore go with it. But of course, those feelings of attraction to that beautiful young thing eventually go below the belt. In other words, the attraction that you have for the beautiful young thing, especially for men, is eventually going to be not just sentimentalized and romanticized, it's going to be eroticized. And therefore, sentimentalism, romanticism, and individualism lead to the eroticism of our culture in which every erotic impulse needs to be honored as being, as being worthy and being true to oneself and being noble and being good. How often have you heard this in our society about some sort of erotic adventure? Well, they were just expressing themselves. They're being true to themselves. They're actually deeply in love. And so that's supposed to excuse everything. Thus, we come to this most this culture that we live in, which is so highly eroticized. And Freudianism takes things one step further and says that sentimental feeling that you have, that romantic feeling that you have, that erotic urge that you have, that is actually who you are. Freudianism reduces everything to that urge. And Freudianism says, this is your true identity. This is who you really are. In your search for your true identity, you've discovered it. It's in those urgings you have from below the belt. That's who you really are. You better face it and don't be embarrassed about it. That's just the way you are. That's the way other people are. This is the way humanity is. No more than the erotic urgings that you have. Well, I've rattled through these 16 isms pretty quickly, but you can see how they're actually all connected uh, and you can see that one of them leads into another very easily. And you can see how they culminate in this um, highly eroticized culture in which we live. Thanks for tuning in to the third installment of Father Dwight's course. We hope you enjoyed listening in and will join us next time when we release the fourth and final class on the ultimate prize, the nine heroes of Christ. Thank you, and see you next time as we continue to discern our path to greatness in ordinary life.